You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host and NCQA Communications Director, Matt Brock. Our guest is a globally recognized pioneer of innovation in IT-based healthcare. Dr. Shantanu Nundi is a primary care physician, technologist, and business leader currently serving as chief medical officer for Accolade, which helps over 2 million people navigate the health system. He practices primary care in the greater Washington, D.C. area and serves as a senior advisor to the World Bank and as a lecturer in health policy at the George Washington University. As a senior health specialist at the World Bank Group, he advised developing countries across Africa, Asia, and South America on health system innovation and technology. All of that influenced Dr. Nundi's views on remote care, telehealth, and how patient care can and should be simplified in the 21st century. Dr. Nundi joins NCQA's Peggy O'Kane for a compelling discussion and a preview of his new book, Care After COVID, What the Pandemic Revealed is Broken in Healthcare and How to Reinvent It. Let's listen in. Shantanu, thank you so much for coming today to talk to me about your book, and congratulations on your book. Oh, thank um, you so much, Peggy. I, I think it, you do a really great job of painting a picture of what uh, is possible in healthcare, and I guess I'm going to have you describe that a little bit, um, if you don't mind. Um, I think this is a great book for non-technical people and, you know, and the, even people that aren't in healthcare. Uh, to begin to understand some of the excitement that we're hearing about healthcare. So, um, why don't you just tell us, sort of, uh, you know, what are you trying to do here? Yeah, no, it's a great question. You know, I, it's it's really interesting. You know, especially now that the book's been out a little bit, and I've had a chance to talk to people about it. What I've realized, which I didn't realize totally when I wrote it, is that we, as a country, don't really have a vision for how healthcare should work for people. You know, if you ask most people, and I've done this now, if you say, what's our vision for healthcare? They'll say, you know, universal healthcare or value-based care. But I kind of say to them, okay, well, what's our vision? Uh, Because this happened to us personally. What's your vision for when two parents are looking at their child on a Saturday night and their child's not feeling well? What's our vision for how healthcare is supposed to work in that moment? Uh, And we don't have one, Mm -hmm. uh, I believe. And so that's really what I think I put forward there is a vision but at that patient experience at that what does it mean for people side of it and then from there saying okay well what does that mean for delivery what does that mean for policy but i wanted to start really with that very human sort of design Mm -hmm. perspective so your book is called care after covid why did you call it that (laughs) it was a big fight with the editor basically (laughs) that's the real answer um but he, yeah. he wanted to call it that or you wanted to call it that? <laughs> Neither of us wanted to call it that, oh. but that's what we landed on. Okay. Um, but, but no, I mean, I, so it's really because, look, we're all, we're all still living in the pandemic. But uh, I think already there's, there's two things that are very true. The, the first is that the pandemic has magnified the core, core fundamental challenges with our healthcare system. And that's important because, you know, you and I both know that it's inequitable. You and I both know that it's inaffordable. But the shared experience, that lived experience of people tr- trying to get a test in those early months, 
trying to get a vaccine for them and their loved ones, that is a visceral shared experience that literally every American has now. And that's really important, I think. And so that's that's sort of the first part of why after COVID. And the second is because, you know, and it's been lost a little bit in 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 obviously all the devastation of the pandemic, but I believe that healthcare has changed more for the better in the past 15, 16 months than it has in any 15, 16 months in its modern history. And so that combination of, hey, we've realized that this the status quo really is not acceptable. And the fact that it started to move in the right direction is why I wanted to frame it around COVID. It's less about the virus and the pandemic, but much more about this potential for this to be a catalytic moment. So what are some of the new technologies that are going to enable us to transform healthcare? Yeah. Let me start with a story. You know, when uh, early in the pandemic, my mom, who's had type 2 diabetes for 20 year, 25 years and has been on insulin for 10 years and has, it, has had it not controlled for a single year in that, you know, she kept hearing about how, um, you know, if you have diabetes and you get COVID, it'll be worse. So she said, enough's enough. And she ended up signing up for this online service. And it was incredible. You know, the next day she got this box, like a, almost like an Apple like uh, computer. She got a box in the mail that had uh, recipes and it had, uh, you know, a wireless glucometer, a wireless weighing scale. She also got a 24-7 health coach. So she literally had someone that she could message day and night. And my mom is hyper communicative if there's anything. So she was messaging this person day and night. She had a doctor that she was able to see virtually. Um, and really, really important for my mom because uh, we come from India. My mom eats Indian vegetarian food. She, they were able to pair her up with a gentleman halfway across the country who uh, comes from our same uh, part of the world and was able to share recipes that worked for her. But the net of all of that is 25 years of diabetes, 10 years on insulin. Within one month, my mom got off of insulin completely from yeah, 25 staggering. units of insulin <laughs> to zero. And it's now been 14 months, knock on wood, and she's still, you know, off of it. And so when you ask the question, like, what's possible, you know, part of it is technology for sure, right? I mean, obviously, many components of technology, the, the wireless connectivity with the devices my mom had, right? The, the sort of the, the, the messaging service that she had, the, the video visits. But hopefully the, the story kind of like sort of conjures up this idea. This was a totally different delivery model. <laughs> I mean, in those first couple of weeks... I felt like it was like landing a plane, right? Like my mom dramatically changed her diet to this ketogenic diet. She started getting these bad headaches. Her blood sugars got too low. Then they got too high. Then the doctor had to adjust the insulin. I mean, it was like landing a plane in a storm, actually. And so that kind of delivery model that you need to do that, enabled by technology so that it's possible but also scalable, um, uh, that's kind of where I'm excited about. So... Talk to me about continuous care. I was very intrigued with the chapter of the book about continuous care. And tell us about what does that mean? Yeah. You know, one of the things, so stepping back, right, you know, back in the day, right, things like heart attacks were, you know, these lightning strikes, right? Families would be devastated that, oh, my God, my loved one got, can't, uh, got, got a heart attack. And, of course, we focused on the acute care. But since then, we've learned, right? We've learned that smoking and cholesterol and, 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 and stress affect our risk of heart disease. And it's by and large um, predictable and by and large preventable. But the challenge is that the whole healthcare delivery system is still built around you know, going to a clinic, going to a hospital. And so continuous care is really this idea that now that what drives most of our health are our behaviors, 
and by the way, that's true for COVID too, right? It's hand washing and distancing were really how we, we controlled this uh, epidemic to the degree that we did. That it, because it has to do those behaviors, we need to now center our care around those behaviors, which means we need to move away from the two hours, three hours, four hours you might spend with a doctor in a clinic uh, per year to the 5,000 hours that we're awake a year, which means that we need to be continuously uh, engaging you, continuously understanding where you are in your health, and continuously you know, adjusting um, uh, in the coaching and the care that we're providing you. Has anybody studied whether patients are interested in being continuously monitored like that? <laughs> I'd, I always come around to, uh, you know, like I know that many people who have diabetes don't like to be called a diabetic. They don't Absolutely. like to be reminded, Absolutely. you know. So I, I think there's a whole thing around the psychology of this that I wonder if people have paid attention to. Uh, ma- massively agree. I mean, I think psychology is a core part of delivery, and it, sh- it needs to be. I mean, look, again, look at the pandemic to not look any further than that. And and I think to a degree, I mean, you know, when I was a researcher a couple moons ago, um, you know, I did study uh you know, what happened was it was a complete accident. I uh, was a resident. I saw these patients with uncontrolled diabetes. Because of my mom, I wanted to do something about it. And I had a very simplistic view. I mean, it was almost embarrassingly simplistic. I said, people forget to take their meds. I will send them automated reminders to take their medications, and people's diabetes will get better. It was almost a joke. And uh, But we did it. We launched this little study, you know, 18-person pilot, four weeks. And at the end of the month, people got better their behaviors improved and, you know, uh, they felt more confident in managing their diabetes. I said, yes, I did it. You know, now we can scale this to everybody everywhere in the world. And one of my research mentors, this gentleman, Marshall Chen, said, eh, ask him why it worked. And I was like, we know why it worked. But anyway, so we ended up sitting down with all the 18 participants, spending an hour with them. It was fascinating what came out because we had these transcripts and in the beginning what we kept hearing from people was they said well you know i listened to the messages and i took my medications because i didn't want marla to get disappointed or i, I don't want to let story. marla <laughs> i don't want to let marla down and i was like marla who the <gasps> and that was that was the moment i said marla was the was the you know you know that the person has to make you fill out the irb forms right that was Marla. Mm. But it turned out Marla's this magnanimous woman. Uh, she turns out she actually is a certified diabetes educator. And she built this incredible connection with people. Uh, and what's interesting is we actually asked some of them. In fact, one of the, the folks was an engineer. Uh, and we said, you know these are automated messages, right? They said, yeah, but they're coming from Marla in some way or shape or form. Like, she's behind this. And I was like, okay. So, so I think that's what made me realize was that, you're right, there is a psychology um, I don't think it was people, you're right, people don't want to be monitored constantly like Big Brother, but I don't think they looked at it that way. They looked at it as a type of friend, a type of, co- in fact, my mom, when she talks about this service, I say, oh, how's that service? Oh, those guys, those guys are my friends, you know, and like my mom's really thick Indian accent. Like, so I think that's the part that I think patients are craving. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's the continuous support more than it is the continuous tracking. Right. So, I mean, you were talking about your company, Accolade, and um, some of the nurses that you hire and how you hire for empathy. Yeah. And I think that's, um, that's really great. And um, why don't you tell us about one of those nurses and, um, you know, what he did? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I think, you know, we hire for empathy, but also I think, I think clinicians are empathetic. I mean, people went into medicine, into nursing for a reason. I think I think we lose that in the model of care. We lose that in sort of the, 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 the payment model and the culture. So I think part of it is 
sort of breaking off those shackles and letting people be this themselves. But yeah, we had this, um, you know, incredible story, you know, about uh, this, this gentleman. So, so what Accolade is this real quick is Accolade basically provides people a personal health assistant. So you have somebody 24 seven who, if you have, they don't provide medical care, but they're basically guiding you on the next step of care. Should I go to the ER? Um, uh, how do I, what's a good doctor for me? I just found out I have breast cancer, right? That's what our service is. And so anyways, we had this, this, this gentleman uh, member text in and said, you know, I need help right now. And so one of our nurses uh, saw that message and of course called the member back. And it turned out that the person had tried committing suicide. Uh, and but with over by overdose and was now very scared. And so kept him on the phone, found out, you know, where he was, what hotel room, etc. Um, and then was able to direct him to services. So said, Okay, you know, uh, we're, we're gonna call, you know, of course, e you know, EMS for you, and etc, etc. Um, fast forward three or four months, they had a couple interactions. And the person says, you know, I need help today. And so again, called back and it turned out this person had been dealing with uh, alcoholism for years. And he was ready for whatever reason this happens, right? He was ready to get into rehab, but it had to be right now today. And of course, it's classics Friday afternoon, <laughs> all around the country, everyone's, you know, clinicians are wrapping up their days. But of course, our team went to work, um, turned out they were able to find an out of network facility uh, that was about, a, you know, 30, 45 minutes away. And of course, the next problem was he had no one to take him. He couldn't drive. And he, through the alcoholism, he had pushed away all his family and friends. And so anyways, our nurse ended up calling an Uber out of her own pocket <laughs> uh, and got this member to them. And so, you know, that's that empathy, but also it's that accountability. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's rare these days, right? That, that someone will truly own. It's more like, well, I did my part. I picked up the phone or I did my part. I did the visit and I told them what medication to take. But after that... And I think that's what's getting lost as we continue to divide up and specialize um, the way we deliver care is, okay, but then who's ultimately holding the bag with you? Right. So does that require payment reform? I mean, I can, you know, I mean, accountability is our kind of middle name, right, at uh -huh. NCQA. Of course, um, of course. And we're just, it's very frustrating to try to think about how to get things done the right way. For example, in classic Medicare, if somebody is not with a medical group or an organized delivery system, we see that people have actually two primary care doctors yes. and multiple specialists, yes. all of whom may be doing their own version of a good job, but it doesn't add up. And so, you know, I, I think the question I have is, does it have to be a payment model where people are held accountable? And, you know, the cost of care is another thing that everybody should be worried about right yeah so is it is it necessary to be in a value-based payment arrangement to get the full benefits of this kind of care wow uh there's a lot to i that. have a bias here yeah yeah there's, there's a lot to that um yeah, yeah I, I mean i think yes i think you need to i think in my mind some level of value-based payment uh is is imperative because ultimately good intentions, if it's not supported by a business model, I think will go away. Right. You know, in our case at Accolade, to give a sense of a different type of value-based payment, the, we get paid on a per member per month fee. Mm -hmm. But 
third a third of our fees are uh, are at risk, meaning we'd have to give it back if we don't hit our measures. Mm-hmm. And of the that third, about a third of that third, so the a third of that third is on experience, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know the we use Net Promoter Score. Mm-hmm. A third of that is on engagement, mm-hmm. uh, and then a third of that is on cost savings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're right. I, I think it is uh, imperative. I, I will make another comment though about primary care and sort of. I think one of the things that, you know, if you go back to the origin, sort of the research origins of primary care is, you know, Barbara Starfield's who I go to, right? And if you think about the four C's that she had, I think that this idea that 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 means you need to have a primary care physician, MD physician as your first line, I think we need to revisit that. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, I mean, if you're a college student, maybe that needs to be a mental health uh, uh, coach. If it's if you're an employer or employee that who's younger, that might mean a health assistant like we have. And of course, if you have more complex needs, it can be a physician. But I, I think that we've just, we've interlocked those things. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if we're doing ourselves a service. And then particularly when you talk about marginalized populations, you know, in one breath we say, well, they don't trust physicians. There's not enough physicians that look and are like them. And the other way we're saying, well, let's just scale up the number of physicians for them. I think we're missing something in there. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's a community health, but there doesn't have to necessarily be a physician. Right. But it has to be coordinated. Marcus Marcus Welby lives, right? Yeah. I mean, really, in all of our imaginations. Yes. Yes. And I think the irony of it, um, and, you know, let me just tell you a little story. I, I met a doctor that was in a patient centered medical home. You know, and we have that program to yeah. recognize yes. practices. Yes. Yes. And the doctor said, you know, you people are making my life miserable because you've given me all this new work to do, and I don't have any extra resources. And that's exactly the wrong way for it to play out, right? right. Because we really support the notion of team-based care that liberates the doctor from things that are really not needing to be done by a doctor, right? Yes. Yes. And, you know, when you're starting to think about continuous data generation from mm-hmm. wearables and so forth, uh, that's more than anybody could possibly handle. And yes. so there is oh, a need to, right, tell us what should happen with that kind of data. You don't want to be bombarding the doctor with it. Right? No, absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah. it's I, I think there's a whole data part, which uh, for sure, but I also think it's, you know, people always say we want people operating at the top of their license. And mm-hmm. I say, no. I want them operating at the top of the next license, uh-huh. right? Uh, one of the stories in the book is, I mean, this blew my mind. I, I had a chance to work at the World Bank um, a couple of years ago and go to post-cyclone Mozambique, where, you know, we've all heard the stories, but just to see it, to see these women, largely women, you know, with less than an eighth grade education, going from household to household with the use of a mobile app, diagnosing children with fever under malaria under five, able to measure their their oxygen level, able to do a rapid diagnostic test and able to dispense out of their backpack that they carry on their back on the bike, you know, anti-malarias and anti-diarrheal medicines. I mean, in meantime, you know, in my clinic, I still get a chance to practice here in DC. In my clinic, I can't even send an, if you have a patient who suddenly is homebound, I can't even have the phlebotomist or the nurse who normally draws their blood in my clinic go to their house to draw the blood at home. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, so, or let alone things like, you know, having, uh, you know, uh, nurses and such use protocols to manage blood pressure and titrate people up. I mean, it, so I just think we need a, a sea change uh, in the way that we think about 
um, you know, the, uh, the professionalization of our, of our staff. Um, and then, of course, there's the data part as well, you know, in terms of, you know, making sure that the data is, you know, has insight that, you know, that it's fitting into workflow, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a broader story as well. So talk to me about empowering people to guide their own care. That's that's your last chapter in the book. And, yeah. Uh, um, I'm just curious, like, what do you mean by that? And um, how should we be thinking about that? Yeah. And I mean, do people want to guide their own care, I guess, is my question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I think that there's a lot of pieces to that. But I think the part that I think about the most is, I mean, look at look at the pandemic, right? Early on in the pandemic, we didn't have enough tests. Uh, we also were worried we didn't have enough room in ERs or hospitals. We also were worried we didn't have enough health workers. And we really held steadfast to the idea that people couldn't test themselves, right? So that was one of my, that's the whole reason I wrote this book is because I went on this diatribe maybe around. Well, it was <laughs> very to, persuasive. Uh, yeah. Trying to get people to be able to test themselves. But um, and so what, the result of it, again, at the surface level policy, maybe, well, oh, someone went to the ER and got a $1,200 bill. Uh, and, you know, we all saw those things. And, and of course, now you can walk into any CVS or Walgreens and over the counter for $14, 10 minutes on your kitchen table, you can find out if you have COVID or not. And I really think that there's something there that we have to pay attention to. Great. You know, I, I met, and I always tell people the control, imagine if women, every time they wanted to know if they could be pregnant, they had to go see a doctor. Just imagine what that would mean. That's how it used to be. <laughs> yeah, that's how it used to be. But imagine what that would mean for prenatal care. Right. And, uh, imagine with, uh, how many people would show up in the ER giving birth. How mm-hmm. many people would be uh, presenting into clinic in the second and third trip? How many people would maybe have birth uh, uh, children that they didn't necessarily want to have? I mean, it, it's, it, and, and I think that's the potential and yet we, again, hold fast to the idea that, that, that it starts with medical care. And the biggest worry in my mind is equity, right? If we say that 20 to 40 percent of Americans don't have a doctor and that a lot of them live in health professional shortages and a lot of them don't trust going to the doctor, that means the moment you tie anything to the doctor, inextricably, you've already lost 20 to 30 percent of the population like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think the vaccine, I think we've built this amazing muscle over the past year, right? We, you know, my clinic for the first time, we canvassed door to door. We, um, uh, you know, set up a little mobile unit. We partnered with the church down the street from us. Like, we need to take that muscle we've built and now apply it to diabetes and, and, and heart care and other things, right? And so, again, that, this is sort of the sort of the magnification that I was talking about, as well as the sort of acceleration, uh, you know, but only so, if we choose it to mm-hmm. be. So you don't envision people kind of putting together their own care system, do you? Or do you? Because I saw some language that pointed in that direction. And I was thinking, okay, if you're like, if you're just trying to find out if you're pregnant, that's a very simple use case, right? If you have congestive heart failure, diabetes, depression, and whatever else, uh, I think you need a system that embraces you and doesn't feel like it's suffocating you. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I 100% agree. I think the other thing I worry a lot about, to your point, is is overburdening people. When you give them, you know, we tried this. We tried these, you know, these sort of high deductible, consumer directed plan, all this stuff. And what we, yeah, what we realized in part was that, you know, yes, that people had, quote, skin in the game, which, by the way, is this absurd to me when I know. this is their like health. Their and literal now they need skin. Their skin. Yeah, it's their, not just their skin, it's their heart. <laughs> 
heart and their lungs and their I, I'm not sure I understand the reference but either way it was a failed experiment and in part because I think all we did was just burden people more absolutely um and that's the opposite we want to do particularly for high complex or high needs right people. right congratulations again on a fantastic book oh, thank you I really recommend it to everybody um uh I think you describe in such an inviting way how healthcare really could be more patient-centered, yeah. lead to better outcomes, um, maybe even save money because we can't afford to be spending all this money on healthcare yeah, sure and driving social determinants in the wrong direction. So Absolutely. thank you very much and congratulations for a fantastic That's job. That's very kind of you. Thank you so much. Yeah, you, you guys were doing the actual work, but I appreciate the comments a lot. Thank you yeah, so much. Thank you. Yeah. That's Dr. Shantanu Nundi with NCQA President Peggy O'Kane. Now, though COVID magnified the inequities and the distrust so many people feel about healthcare, these issues are, of course, rooted in historically unequal and even, in some cases, abusive treatment. A while back, Inside Healthcare welcomed Dr. Joya Career Perry of the National Birth Equity Collaborative to discuss black infant maternal health. We bring you a bit of that discussion now from episode 19 of Inside Healthcare. To be clear, although our organization focuses on black infant and maternal health because, A, it's the highest number, so black women are dying at three to four times the rate of their white counterparts in the United States. Mm. So it's important for us to also recognize if we can fix it for black folks, imagine what will happen for everybody else, right? So if we're not listening to black women and we create a metric to make us have to listen to women in general, that means that some of the white mothers who are passing or who are not surviving childbirth will also have a better opportunity to thrive. So it starts, and we, you know it in CQA, we believe if you don't measure it, exactly. you can't improve Can it. you imagine? Right. So we're all for measuring, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and we want to make it as easy as possible right. for uh, the folks who are measuring to measure exactly. and hand that information over mm-hmm. so we can indre- address uh, improvements. But why? Why especially black women? Yeah. Well, you know, we have to have an honest conversation in this country that we have not had around racism, classism, and gender oppression. So the truth is, we know that we have built structures that devalue. We were built on a structure that values people differently based upon their skin color. That is not... Um, racism is not a bad word. I'm not calling somebody a mean name. Mm-hmm. It's actually a current and historical fact that we build our systems to say one group should have and one group shouldn't. And so that ha- what happens when people enter health care is they might have had years of not having insurance, right? Because we'll say, well, you only deserve insurance when you're pregnant. And the majority, a lot of those women might be of color. Mm-hmm. Right? And so then they've built up chronic disease for a while because they haven't had access to insurance. And now you come into pregnancy with hypertension that's been unaddressed for 10 years. You're too going late too late. You're going to be sicker. And then we blame the patient, right, for like not coming to the doctor and not participating, having as a structure, as a system, not invested in them in the first place. That discourages them. Yes. If not uh, just uh, complacency alone. Exactly. It, it actually discourages exactly. them, it sounds exactly. like. So, th- so how revolutionary would it be for us to live up to our American ideal? How revolutionary would it be for us to say, we believe all people have value. We're going to invest in everybody. Dr. Joy Career Perry talking with me about health equity on this podcast. That was episode 19. If you haven't listened to episode 19, I highly recommend it. By the way, you can send your feedback, thoughts, and guest recommendations to communications at ncqa.org. That's communications at ncqa.org. We, of course, welcome your input and especially those guest recommendations. 
Before we go, we want to remind you of NCQA's Quality Innovation Series. The series of over 40 courses features experts and colleagues from across the healthcare spectrum. Sessions cover everything from health equity to telehealth, from high-tech medicine to the future of patient care. For all Quality Innovation Series sessions, NCQA offers discounts and continuing education credits towards maintaining various certifications. Upcoming sessions include Thursday, August 12th, Addressing Health Disparities in Quality Measurement, an Examination of the Vital Few. This session explores health equity issues, a current focus of NCQA's work. Wednesday, August 18th, we offer a discussion on quality accelerators in healthcare as we present Improving Quality and Efficiency of Care, the Power of Standardized Electronic Health Records. And August 19th, when the Quality Innovation Series presents Building Better Care, Developing a Healthcare Quality Index. That's another session dealing with health equity. You can sign up for as many sessions as you like, and all the sessions are recorded and may be viewed at any time. Find out more about the 2021 Quality Innovation Series at education.ncqa.org. That's education.ncqa.org. So that does it for another edition of Inside Healthcare. Thank you for joining us. I'm Matt Brock. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.